Okay. Okay. Michael Durda is a writer and senior editor for the Washington Post Book World. For th- now, I'm reading this because we're going to be talking about it. I'm reading this biography off the dust jacket of readings, essays, and literary entertainments published in 2000. Yeah. So you're going to have to update me if... uh, Well, it was 20 years ago. Okay, so for three years he was a board member of the National Book Critics Circle. His essays and reviews have appeared in numerous publications... In 1993, Durda received the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel, for inviting me to be here. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? I could say that I've now been working for the Post in some fashion for the last 42 years. I started writing for them in 1977. Mm-hmm. I was hired as an assistant editor in 1978 and worked there pretty much as an editor, not so much as a writer, becoming the deputy editor for a good decade, We're concentrating my efforts on building up Bookworld as a book section mm-hmm. to rival the New York Times Book Review. That's what it was, it was a, standalone, right? Yeah, it was a, a pull-out section of mm-hmm. 16 pages. Mm-hmm. We had lots of different features, wonderful interviews at, over the years. And I was part of that. It was a great period to be in journalism because it was just after Watergate. The Post was, the Washington Post was riding high. I sometimes think it's sort of charming that I started at the paper when the movie of All the President's Men came out. And I'm still working here, although starting to wind down a bit, when this more recent movie, The Post, about the Pentagon Papers has appeared. So both equally fine movies, by the way. Interesting portraits of people I knew. We were chatting a little bit about film on the way up here, but uh, I made a decision when I was in graduate school not to become a film critic, but to become a book critic. I toyed with the idea. I used to go to a lot of movies, and I'm pretty knowledgeable about movies up to about the mid-1970s. In fact, I used to occasionally go to uh, films with Terry Rafferty, who became a a film critic for The New Yorker for a while and still writes a lot about film and culture and books. Mm -hmm. But then I I switched to books um, and never really thought about movies again, and so I... I've probably seen 20 movies in the last 25 years. Oh, uh, okay. just, yeah, that's because you are probably the best read critic I can think of. And you read slowly. Those things don't typically go together. Well, about being the best read, well, there, Michael Kinsley once said I was the best read person in America, but I didn't rub it in. Uh, there are, in fact, lots of wonderfully read people, and some you've interviewed. Alberto Mangal, a friend of mine, is amazingly well-read. George Steiner. Uh, mm. There were there are other other people too. But but I you have, must I, spend a lot of time during the day reading every single day. Well, I figure it's my job. You, know, you get paid for it. Yeah, I've been lucky. I, I found a way to make a living, support a family, do what I like. I mean, I always wanted to spend my my life with books and writing. 
I thought I was going to become a college teacher, did get a PhD in comparative literature, but got sidetracked uh, into journalism because of my then girlfriend, now long my wife, Marion. She'd come to Washington on an internship at the Library of Congress. She's a prints and drawings conservator, a paper conservator. Worked with Peter Waters, who was the guy who was in charge of the book restoration during the Florence Flood. Afterwards, he came to Washington. Uh, there she, she learned a lot of her, her, her skills as a conservator. But I was, had been in graduate school, and I would come down to Washington to see her. We'd, we'd met when we were both students at Oberlin College. But we weren't sure we could stand each other for more than a weekend a month. <laughs> so when I was set to write my dissertation, I came down to Washington. Cor I was at Cornell at the time. And, uh, no wonder I, you like Nabokov. Well, I mean, he'd, he'd already left Cornell by that time I was there. But his legend moved around. People would identify houses he'd lived in. Yeah. No, I mean, I, at Cornell, I'd, been, I'd spent two years in medieval studies. And at the time I was about to start my dissertation, I decided I wasn't cut out to be a medievalist, and I took two more years of courses and studied European Romanticism, and I wrote a dissertation on Stendhal here in, in D.C. So, so then I looked for teaching jobs and was offered some, one at the University of Houston, one at Union College. But for one reason or another, Marion didn't want to, want to go to either of these places. She didn't want to leave Washington, in fact, mm. because she liked working at the library, and she can only work at a library, a major museum. So I said, well, I'll just stay here and find something else to do. And you, you should stayed know. here for how many years now? Well, I've been here since 1975. But I, I stayed, I mean, and I did, I mean, I come from a very working class family. My, my father left school at 16 during the Depression after his father died and he went to work in a steel mill. Mm. My mother was a homemaker and as a cashier at W.T. Grant's department store. And I was the first kid in the family to go to college. And but your that, father wanted you to do something useful. Well, he wanted, me, he, he wanted me to make a lot of money. He thought you were useless. Well, yeah. He, I was supposed to be smart, but I was interested in books instead of things that would, that would, would essentially bring in a lot of cash. Uh, and I told him, you know, I, we, we were poor, yeah. so there was a lot of concern about money. And I said, I want to find a way of life that I don't have to think about money all the time, one way or the other. But you, you knew that he loved you, though. Well, yes, I did, but he was a difficult man. I wrote an essay in, in, in readings about him that's one of my more popular pieces because it's a portrait of someone who's clearly a difficult human being, but mm -hmm. who did love his son, me. Yeah. But who would see me reading books, and he would he would kick the books out of my hands and send me down the basement to build something or outside to play sports. And there I was nearsighted; I couldn't har could hardly see the ball half the time if I took my glasses. So I was a ter I was terrible at sports. But uh, he walked but, out of one of your graduation ceremonies oh, yeah. because he was ticked off at what something that Jesse Jackson had said. So he missed you getting your degree. Yeah, I mean, he graduating with the uh, highest honors in English, and uh, he never saw it because yeah. he was so annoyed. This was, you know, he was a man of his time, and mm -hmm. he, had, he had prejudices, mm -hmm. strong feelings. And Jesse Jackson, this is 1970 when I graduated from Oberlin, a time of great stress and trauma in the, the nation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so emotions ran high. Anyway, I came to Washington, decided to stay here because of Marion, looked around for work, and 
I worked as a translator for a bit for Berlitz and various other people. I translated history of an order of nuns called the Religious of the Eucharist, who had their convent not far from here, and uh, eventually became a technical writer for a computer company, but really didn't know what I was doing. All because of the love of a woman. Well, yeah, I mean, pretty that's important. life. It's, yeah, it's pretty important. It's, it's what happens. It's true love, that's what um, that is. Yes, uh, but I remember working for Scientific Timesharing Corporation mm. on financial planning systems for banks, and I've always thought I was responsible for the savings and loan crisis of the 80s because I was writing these manuals and really didn't understand the computer language APL very well and didn't understand anything about banking. They, you know, you, I know you were involved in much more uh, these sorts of financial uh, trade and uh, banking sorts of business than I, than I ever was. I was not good at it. I never was involved in any banking. Well, not banking, but some, you know, you, you were business. involved in business, numbers. I, you know, I'm never, I've never been good with numbers. I never took any math after 10th grade. But what you are is you're my favorite kind of critic, and there's so few of you around. Uh, you speak to me as the reader, but you also um, and you provide great evaluative feedback on content, as well as ideas and advice for me, the collector. So who else does that? Well... I mean, all, I think all what you say I think is true. I do try to write for ordinary people. I, I hate critics who sound condescending or superior. Uh, not to say that I don't sometimes use, you know, reasonably sophisticated language, but I, I try to make things plain and clear. I do want to communicate with people, and what I want to communicate is my affection, enthusiasm for books. Mm -hmm. I want people, when they read a piece by me, Say, well, I want to go out and read that book. You identify what you love, and then you explain why. Saint Augustine, he said, that all criticism has to start with love, and that's that's where I start. Some critics start with anger or resentment or hate or try to or try to just prove how how smart they are. It seemed to me I've always, having grown up on westerns, where the the quiet sort of guy who never tries to assert himself is actually the fastest gun in town. Is, is the sort of model that I've always admired. So I try not to, 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 to be flashy, but, but if I have to, I can draw on all kinds of uh, knowledge and uh, material. Who else? I mean, who else does this? Does or did? Well, for me, I learned from different kinds of critics. When I was in college at Oberlin, the first critic that, critics that, uh, well, even before then, we go back to my childhood, I happened to discover, actually, I kind of I tell a story about stealing, in a sense, uh, a copy of Clifton Fadiman's Lifetime Reading Plan, and I later read I read that book and I uh, love that book. And I read Fadiman's essays. He wrote a yeah. lot of essays. Party yeah. of One is yeah. a selected one. He became over time sort of the representative middle brow critic. He worked for the Book of the Month Club. He wrote for magazines. Because they wouldn't let him be a prof at the university because they'd already filled their Jewish quota. That could well be. I mean, I, I, I think he was a little bit upset about that for a good part of his life. Well, there were, that was certainly the, uh, the time, although in later life 
he kind of suppressed his Jewish background, at yes. least according to Anne Fadiman's memoir of her father. Yeah. But um, I, I, I love the way he wrote. He wrote in, in, a, in a conversational manner. He wrote with ease and clarity and wit, and he's funny. That kind of was a model for me as a kid. I later, I loved Thoreau's Walden, and he also writes this very plain prose. Mm -hmm. But when I got to college, I discovered a couple of critics who had a lot of zing, as well as being writers for the uh, general reader. One was the poet Randall Jarrell, who was, as a critic, brilliant and scathing mm -hmm. and, and very funny. He once wrote of a poet, Oscar Williams, who he didn't like. He said his, his poems sound as if they were written on a typewriter by a typewriter. Uh, and he would toss these things off, and mm -hmm. he was incredibly mean. I, I'm not mean, but I loved the, 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 the wit he brought to it. Then I also discovered Ezra Pound, mm -hmm. his literary essays and the ABC of reading. Mm -hmm. you know, Pound is a controversial figure, particularly later in life, but these earlier works where he, he talked about the importance of know, knowing books from the past that were foundational, that were models, templates for all kinds of later forms. And his ideal was, you know, you read the earliest example of something because it's the one that provided the, the, the model that people would go on to. Mm -hmm. After that, I had other two other critics I, uh, that, that were important to me who weren't particularly uh, journalistic, but they taught me how to read well. One was the more important of the two, for me, was William Empson, whose Seven Types of Ambiguity would tease out all the possible meanings of a line of poetry. Does he love his poems? Yeah, well. I wrote my undergraduate thesis on his poetry. Uh, he was a wonderful poet, much influenced the poets in England called uh, the, the Movement, of which Philip Larkin is probably the best-known mm -hmm. member. Clive James has just written a book, I think that was his last book on Larkin, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Clive James is again a later critic who I, I admire as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, Empson was, he was just, he was brilliant. And his, his poetry, they're, they're, they're often love poems with metaphysical conceits using modern physics and science. But there's one, you know, it begins, slowly the poison, the whole bloodstream fills. The waste remains, the waste remains and kills. Or this one, it is, it's a villanelle, it repeats these lines. Your chemic beauty burned my muscles through. Uh, poise of my hands reminded me of you. My Oh, my heart pumps yet the poison draft of you. Wonderful <laughs> lines. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Epsis, you know, criticism taught, taught me to look really closely at, at, at poems. The other critic was your fellow Canadian, Northrop Fry, who's... Anatomy of Criticism told me, stand back from the work of art, look at the grand pattern, mm -hmm. see what's, you know, the, those archetypal uh, movements within, within a novel or a poem, which will be other ways of, of seeing what's happening. So the, the two worked well together. Mm -hmm. But then, when I was in graduate school, the critic I most admired and wanted to be was Eric Auerbach. Mm -hmm. But you had to be one of these incredibly learned German-Jewish scholars who'd gone to school learning everything about theology and law and philosophy as well as literature. And I realized that I was never going to be learned enough to do that. You know, but, but to become a journalist, when I, I got to start it, my, my models were figures like Edmund Wilson, Cyril Conley in England, some of the people who wrote for The New Yorker like Janet Flanner, 
were who had a kind of they they brought personality to what they wrote, mm. but they also brought great learning and great wit, and I, I aspired to that. But uh, I don't think they bring in the actual physical book and the idea of acquiring them to the degree that you do, which is well, what is I find so appealing about what you do. Who uh, does that? Miguel does so. He's talked about his library of like forty thousand books. He's obviously yeah. but he doesn't talk too much about collecting them. No, I also am a book collector, and that that the, the and so some of my essays and some of my books talk about the pleasure of finding odd books, discovering them in bookshops. I, I do have friends who are collectors and who write well. There's a guy in England I, I'm very fond of. I wrote recently about named Mark Valentine. Uh, especially interested in what we think of as supernatural literature, uh, ghost stories, uh, figures like Arthur Mackin. Uh, but his tastes are, are, are extend to aesthetes and decadence of the 1890s and later. But uh, most of his essays start off with him in a bookshop discovering a book or discovering an author, mm -hmm. and he, he writes about them with great flair and wit and uh, love. Mm. There's also a wonderful YouTube video that was made by a mutual friend of both Valentine's and mine named Ray Russell who runs a press in England called Tartarus Press which reprints both classic supernatural literature and new books by modern writers in the tradition. Mm. The, the problem with collecting beautiful books, and I do have you know pretty books from private presses and, and the like, is that there's a tendency to treat them as objets d'art. You, you don't read them, you just kind of look at them. Because mm -hmm. you, know, you don't want to damage them because that affects yeah, the value. Yeah. It affects the value, sometimes it affects the So you the buy appearance. reading copies, I guess. That's what people do. I, I tend not to buy reading copies, but I don't go after books that I'm going to not read and that are so, so you know, I have to keep pristine as a result. If I have a really nice older book where the jackets are hard to come in, I'll put you know protectors on them, and yeah. I generally read without. Have, I take the jackets off when yeah. I read them. Yeah. Uh, if, if they have jackets, but in fact, I have mixed feelings about dust jackets in general. Those produced since the Second World War, books produced since the Second World, are really meant to be seen with the jackets. The book, the book underneath, they're often rather shoddy kind of. Book, book yeah. cloth, yeah. but whereas books before the Second World War, when there was typically people would often, you, you know, as a matter of course, get rid of the jackets. Those books look very handsome on the wall. They have, if you have, a, you know, a books with good book cloth, dark tonalities. It's very restful. It looks like a you know a gentleman's library. Whereas if you have jacketed books, they're kind of gaudy and mm -hmm. flashy They're and meretricious. I much prefer the, the former. I, you know, mm -hmm. I think of myself as politically progressive, but in some ways culturally conservative. <laughs> well, like because it's books. what? It's soothing. It helps you, and you can read yeah. and relax. Well, they are soothing. I like to look at them that way, but also they are, they seem inviting to me. They don't put me off. I, mm -hmm. if, if This is why I like, as I say, I like good, you know, well-made books, mm -hmm. but I want to be able to feel I can read them without without any kind of hesitation. Mm -hmm. Partly because, being a, a reviewer, I read everything with a pencil in my hand, and all yeah. my books are marked up. I've lessened the value of almost all of them, except for the few that I think, well, I bet this is worth 
too much money to bother with, you know, or to damage that way. Well, you haven't, though. But I want to use them. Yeah, but it's you, though, because you put, you, you put your name in that book. I think no. the book will be a little <laughs> bit more valuable well, I mean, because I thought, you've annotated it. I, yeah, if, I, if I put my name in them, and I yeah. don't, I just I think of the books as tools. They're yeah. my books. I use them. I don't try to, you know, to, to make them look horrible because by, by writing too much in them, but I do write a lot in pencil. You can erase the yeah. pencil if you get the book, if you don't want it. Yeah. There's a famous story about in the 19th century about a, a book, uh, book collector who found a, a set of uh, Saint-Simon's memoirs, multi-volume set about the court of Louis XIV, filled with annotations in pencil all throughout it. And he, he erased them all. And then, <laughs> you know, on the last, last volume, he discovered that the annotations belonged to the great French critic Saint-Beuve, who was like the leading 19th yeah. century French critic. Yeah. So he had, in fact, lessened the value of this collection <laughs> immensely by erasing the annotations. I don't believe that's going to happen in my case. But I, I had a friend, Robert Phelps, who was a wonderful writer, again, another model for me, okay. as close as I came to having a, a mentor. Okay. Phelps did a was an expert on Colette, did a book on Colette called Earthly Paradise. And that's why you love letters. Colette, then. Yeah, partly. Yeah. And uh, also a book called The Literary Life, a scrapbook almanac of the Anglo-American literary scene from 1900 to 1950. But he would buy, get his books, he would throw out all the jackets, in fact, he would cut out the pictures of the art of the writers, and he had a scrapbook of writers' faces, <laughs> and he would write in his books in ink. And he had rare books. He even had the famous book of poems, that, uh, Auden's first book of poems that was printed in the 1930s by Stephen Spender on some little press in which there are like you know, 40 copies. <laughs> and he had his, you know, and it's all annotated in ink. Uh, and I, I admire that. I couldn't do it myself when it's something as rare as that. But he, but Robert used to say, oh, these are my books. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. really care what happens to them later. And uh, I, I inherited a number of them after his, his death. He was a wonderful writer. Now, speaking of just prior to the Second World War, there's a, and we're talking about your book, Readings, published by the University of Indiana Press. Yeah. I thought that was intriguing. Well, you have to remember, this was my first book. Well, actually, in some ways, the second book. I did do a little book before that for the Book of the Month Club called Caring for Your Books, mm-hmm. because my wife being a, a conservator, and we had lots of friends who were book conservators and calligraphers and like, so I knew a lot about caring for your books. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this little paperback for the Book of the Month Club, which was a free dividend. Right. But this is my first proper book, because there was a, a wonderful editor at the U- Indiana University Press who had collected the gardening pieces of a late friend of mine at the Post named Henry Mitchell, who was a wonderful writer mm-hmm. uh, on gardening particularly, but on all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And he said he liked my pieces too and wanted to do this book. And I said, no, sure. Uh, I hadn't thought about publishing them as a book. But after that, I've done, I don't know, six or eight other books of memoirs, essays. And you won the Pulitzer for the Conan Doyle book? No, I won the Pulitzer for my reviews. All my books come after 2000. The Pulitzer came in 93. There's a category for criticism where you can submit up to 10 pieces of criticism, essays mm. and reviews okay. for the prize. And I had decided to win it to impress my father. My father, who was a, you know, as we were saying earlier, a difficult man, and um, I always thought I was kind of a failure because I hadn't become a millionaire. 
So I said, I win the Pulitzer Prize and I'll impress him. So I, I was nominated for that category by the paper three years in a row, and the third time I won. Mm. But of course, as these things go, my father had, had died six months earlier, so he never saw me win the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. However, uh, my mother was still alive, and she was alive till two or three years ago. She died just short of 94. My mother really was a wonderful woman, very sort of peasant virtues and attitudes, believed strongly in the balance of the universe, the yin and the yang, the mm. Tao. That mm. is, if something good happened to you, that meant something bad was going to happen to you or your family, or something bad happened, something good was going to everything would balance out. And so if you're, you're having your father was bad and this was balancing no, it out? Well, no, or was but, she getting nervous about what was going to happen bad to balance well, out no, that Well, no, that was aside from this. What was, was really much more mundane. I, I call her up and I, to tell her, the Mom, I say, Mom, Mom, I won the Pulitzer Prize. And there's a long pause on the phone. And then she says, well, I guess there's no point in going to bingo tonight. This is absolutely true. <laughs> she knew she couldn't win. <laughs> so anyway, I did win the Pulitzer Prize, and then uh, that, that allowed me to write more. I'd been mostly an editor up till then, okay. I, until I decided to, to, to focus on the writing. So if, after that, I was given two days off a week at the Post to, be a, to write a review or a piece each week. Mm-hmm. And the other three days of the, of the week, I worked downtown as a, an editor assigning books in what you'd call arts and letters, the humanities. And I went on, and I did that till till fifteen years ago. Let's uh, let, sorry. Let's just yeah. get back to prior to the Second World War. Yeah, uh, you're talking about books being particularly uh, the, the the covers specifically being being interesting and beautiful. There's an essay in the book, readings referencing uh, Clive James, and he references the Phaedon art books of mm-hmm. just prior to the Second World War. They're all in black and white because, yeah. because color then comes in and displaces them, but they're beautiful books and they're not expensive. Right. And he's going after them and they're, uh, as you say, they're, they're objet d'art. And so you, and this is what I love about mm-hmm. that particular essay, is that here's an idea, yeah. and you follow up on it, and you can. And so you get them. Yeah, I mean, Clive James was, was, was a model of that kind of engaging, uh, writing about all sorts of things, not only books, but he was a collector of sorts. Mm-hmm. And in this case, these Faden books are beautifully done. Are they still? They, they were scholarly. You still turn them up. You can get them. You can go down to second story books now and probably unearth a couple of certainly in the warehouse. Yeah. But I, I bought a number of them because the, the photography, even though it's black and white, is gorgeous in the yeah. way that you think of, you know, some of these wonderful uh, films from the 1930s have that, that they play with the shadows and the light. And, uh, they're, but, they're but why are and, they and gorgeous? And they're scholar, they're, you know, because of the quality of the photography, but they're supplemented. And the quality of the printing? The printing, the photographs are very crisp. They're really, you know, because if you don't have color, you work hard to make it convey something of the aspect of a, of a painting. And the, but the other, other thing that makes them valuable are the, the texts, the introductions, yes. the commentary by distinguished European scholars who are you know, often the leading authorities on you know, Rembrandt or Caravaggio or whoever. Yeah. Um, and then you reference in that uh, article, the, is it the Harper Torch? 
Harper Torch books. Yeah, yeah I mean, at different times, you know, you, you get interested in subjects or you get interested in publishers and you'd like to gather their books. Harper Torch books were famous because they would reprint great classics of academic scholarship, but the more accessible kinds of academic scholarship. Things like Mimesis, uh, or, uh, well, that was also an anchor paperback. Yeah, nice, uh, well-made Yeah, anchor. or, um, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, Curtius's European Literature in the Latin Middle Ages, or the Harper Torch book, Histories of Europe. One of my teachers, he'd already retired at Oberlin, Freddie Arts, Frederick Arts, had written one on Age of Revolutions for them. But they and were, this they is were, for content, but, right? Yeah. Primarily. This is but another, they're I mean, paperbacks, right? Yeah. They're yeah. all paperbacks, but another similar company would be Dover Books, particularly if you're interested, as I am, in genre fiction. The great E.F. Blyler, one of the world's, you talk about uh, well read men. I, I, I would imagine that, in my experience, E.F. Blyler was the best read person I've ever met. Anyway, he worked at Dover Books and he reprinted a lot of 19th century mysteries, uh, ghost stories, uh, science fiction, figures like Sheridan Le Fanu and M.R. James, and would write uh, Dunsany, any number of these things, and introduced a lot of people to writers who are foundational to genres like fantasy and science fiction, but aren't as well known as they should be. In fact, the book I've been working on for the last couple of years is about that early period of, in, in the development of what you think of as genre literature, the, the, the time between about, I'll say, 1880 and 1930, when, particularly the earlier period, when you didn't yet have the competition of radio and music, uh, movies and TV, and people got their entertainment from magazines. Plus, you had you had mass literacy for the first time. I'm thinking mostly Britain. Uh, in England, and you had uh, near paper making machine made paper out of you know uh, uh, out of, of, of material other than rags, so that you could have it available for you know newspapers and, and like quickly and cheaply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you had railroads to move things around. Anyway, you had magazines like The Strand and Pearsons and the like of me appear, and iconic figures: Sherlock Holmes, Scarlet Pimpernel, The Prisoner of Zenda. Alice in Wonderland, you know, any number of people with Captain Blood. They first you, appear in They, they appear in magazines, yeah. and they're often, not always, but mostly, and they, you have this, this, this time of ferment in popular fiction. Mm. When these are the, this is the, the, the period when the scientific romance, as science fiction was then called, H.G. Wells started, detective stories with, you know, largely with Arthur Conan Doyle, but other, many other figures as well. Um, you have lots of adventure stories, Stanley Wayman and Jeffrey Farnell, Raphael Sabatini, E. Nesbitt uh, do, doing the same things with children's literature and, and, and really starting modern children's books in, in some ways. Anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful period and wonderful books. Uh, they're, they're, are they uh, they're, easily accessible? Or? Yeah, you can find most of them now. Some were reprinted by Dover. Many are available now. You know, E-Text through Guten, Project mm -hmm. Gutenberg. And they've been reprinted. I try to talk about mostly books that are well-known, but I, there are a number that are less well-known, and I try to, I'm hoping to bring your attention to them. Yes, I think you end one of your essays by saying, you know, Instead of going after the canon and reading what everyone everyone reads, why don't you 
search out at the library or a bookstore someone yeah. that you haven't read or that you've never even heard of and give them a shot. Yes, I mean I I mean I've over the years though I've worked for a newspaper and I've I've you know I've reviewed books that became bestsellers but in general I've tried to avoid reviewing any book that I thought was likely to make the bestseller list. Mm -hmm. I like to review the books that aren't going to become bestsellers but perhaps should be and give attention to the novels that are by the writers who are under recognized, under appreciated, mm -hmm. or older books. Who do you think are maybe the, a handful of the most underrated, unacknowledged, great writers? I'll talk about people just from in my own career mm. of, of reviewing. So people of the last forty years. I think the one writer has written masterpieces for every age group. That's Russell Hoban. If you're a little kid, you read Bread and Jam for Francis. When you get a little older, you can read How Tom Be Captain Najork and His Hired Sportsman. A little better, The Brilliant, The Mouse and His Child, which is just it's like Samuel Beckett writing children's books at times. And for adults, you have a number of novels, but most notably Ridley Walker. It was shortlisted for the Booker, should have won the Booker, didn't win any of those prizes. Mm -hmm. It's it's written in a kind of jangled, broken English mm -hmm. that it looks off-putting for a while until you get the, the feel of it, but it's set in a post-Holocaust England after some nuclear disaster. But Hoban works it so that the people who have kind of forgotten the past mix up what they call the, the references to Adam as in Adam and Eve, and Adam as an atomic power. So he talks about the little shining man, the Adam, in the story is, is a folkloric figure. You know, it's really about the war, about what's happened with this nuclear disaster. And there's Punch and Judy in it. It's, it's just a brilliant book. And he's, he has a style that I find incredibly infectious. But all these books are, are quite wonderful. Or you have a writer like Gilbert Sorrentino, who's... Uh, a great mammoth book of jokes and puns, and it's, it's dedicated to Flann O'Brien, the great Irish humorist. Uh, it's called Mulligan Stew, uh, a terrific book. But he also wrote other books that were uh, the uh, book called Imaginative Qualities of Actual Things, probably the best book ever written about the, the literary artistic scene in New York in the, the 60s and early 70s, which he was part of. Fiction or non-fiction? Not fi fiction, all fiction. Okay. Uh, he taught fiction at Stanford. Uh, you know, it's the Wall Stegner chair for a while. Not not a good match, but an iconoclastic writer, kind of a beat writer. He used to be a good friend with. Um, Amiri Baraka, back when Baraka was Leroy Jones, and also Hubert Selby, who wrote Last Exit from Brooklyn. But Sorrentino, very funny writer. Uh, I remember this one line in, in, in Mulligan Stew. He, he has an entire play within the book called about baseball, the ma a, mask, a mask of baseball. He has an entire book of poems by a really bad poet by, named Lorna Flambeau, whose book, chapbook is called The Sweat of Love. And he'll just t toss, off, toss off little bomos like pitchers make such bad batters because they think of the ball as their friend. Anyway, Hoban, Sorrentino, wonderful writers. They're, they're odd books that I, I'm very fond of. V.R. Lang, by a memoir, was Alison Lurie's first book. She became a well-known novelist, but this memoir is a, a, a beautiful portrait of Harvard and the early 1950s 
and of the, of the people who were there, the mm. poets and writers, Edward Gorey, the, the artist, and mm. John Ashbery, and you know, several other people of that generation all interacted at the, in the early 50s. And she writes about them in this memoir of a, of a, a woman who died young named V.R. Lang, was a poet and dramatist. But it's an odd little book, but it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful memoir. What's the, the best book about publishing that you've, uh, you've ever read? Well, book publishing per se, let's see. There, I mean, there, there are a number of them about newspapers and yeah, about... Scoop and, you know, yeah, Scoop and... Yeah, uh, and Michael Frayn's Toward the End of the Morning, which is very funny as well. William Targ's Indecent... Uh, was it Indecent Pleasures? Yeah. Um, so. is, a, is a good one about publishing back in the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. and back, giving advice on for young would-be publishers to work in bookstores, to learn that part of the business. And Although I've read a number of books about publishing, I've read more books about book collectors and book collecting. Okay. When I became interested in books, I started reading things like Fleming and Wolf's biography of A.S.W. Rosenbach, a uh, bookseller. Mm. I reviewed uh, Rare Book Trade by H.P. Krauss when I first got to the Post. There are two wonderful books of by Gene Peters called uh, Book Collecting uh, Guide or something like that, and Book Collecting Some New Paths with essays on, for example, um, uh, Tom Tensell, the great bibliographer writing about collecting non-firsts. Everyone collects first editions. And he talks about his own collection of one of the Sinclair Lewis novels, Babbitt or Main Street, where he has decided, because of his textual interests, to not just collect the first edition, which is easy to find, he says. Easy to find, it will cost you a, a pretty penny, but easy. But he wanted to collect all the printings. And he said to find, this is before the internet, say the 13th printing of say Main Street, you might only pay a quarter for it, but yeah. it would take you half a lifetime before you turned it up, maybe. It's um, exactly the same text, he just wanted the, the 13th the, printing. Because there, in fact, there are textual things that happen as books are reprinted, and he was, he's a student of those things. Okay. And you can only see them by having the whole range of the publishing history. But uh, he also wrote a, a wonderful book about dust jackets and their importance, what they tell us, and, and the like. I really like Percy Muir's uh, Book Collecting for Every Man, John Carter's ABC of Book Collecting, and Taste and Technique in Book Collecting. Mm -hmm. uh, my old friend Alan Hearn and Pat, his late wife, Pat Hearn, uh, wrote a number of books of guides to collecting and um, did a big volume called Collected Books, which was a sequel to Van Allen Bradley's Handbook of Values, which is where people used to go to look up what your first edition of uh, The Wasteland was worth. And, you know, okay. I've, I've collected books about books in a, in a you know, desultory way ever since. I mean, I once taught a class on the book arts. I, I took a, a Smithsonian course in bookbinding from Tom Albro, who was then uh, became the uh, head book conservator at the Library of Congress, now in private practice. And so I learned basic bookbinding. I practiced calligraphy for a while, partly because... You, you people, sound like uh, William Morris, actually, getting in there and doing stuff. Oh, I love William Morris. I'm a great admirer of William Morris for just that reason. But uh, Peter Waters, I mentioned earlier, was in charge of the book Restoration of the Florence Flood. His wife, Sheila Waters, is was at that time the only member of the Scribes and uh, Society of Scribes and Illuminators in America. Sheila Waters is still alive, and she's 
generally regarded as, by many, as the greatest calligrapher of our time. She did the uh, interlacing initials on my wedding announcements, or my, my wife and my, my, and her son Julian did the inside where you have all the information about where to go for the wedding and all that, mm. and callig beautiful calligraphy. Julian was trained by his mother, and he was for many years the White House calligrapher for all the, f the formal things. And, now he does other things with typography and digital stuff. He's mm. moved on. Mm -hmm. But, um, mm. you know, I, I, the, the whole physical aspect of the book appeals to me. Books, books are, are wonderful objects, and, but I think they are meant to be held and used and mm. not just worshipped. You say that your favorite books are journals, letters, maxims, commonplace books. Why is that? I think because I like I like witty remarks. My book, book by book, is in fact based on uh, a commonplace book I keep, where I copy passages from my lines from my reading that I that I like, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I rearrange them in categories and added a little commentary. But the idea of the the aphorism, the maxim, they just just appeal to me. They're easy to, you know, to in some ways to read, fun to, to look at at night and, or think about, and they can stick in your memory. They, they reflect the personality of the person who's compiled them or, or done them. I, I do like writing that reveals a human being. Writers and artists, they're, they're often, you know, a few of them are, are fairly sedate figures, but, you know, it's uh, and, and not that interesting as people, but most of them I find fascinating. Even people like you know Henry James, who mm. spent all his time r r writing, but he's wonderful to read about. And mm. people like Nabokov or Auden, you know, there are so many. There are lots of books about them, and they're because they were such fascinating characters. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're involved in the world of letters, of journalism, and writing, you also recognize some of the same issues you see aspects of your own life and career in theirs. They may be far greater and uh, uh, more gifted than you are, but there's a certain, you share a certain amount of common, uh, common interests, common experience. Mm -hmm. You love uh, Cyril Connolly's uh, Unquiet yeah. Grave. Yeah, that is again, a, 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 you know, one of these books of fragments, yeah. uh, diaries put together. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, and Conley, of course, was famous for his wit and his melancholy and self-centeredness. But, you know, he, he famously said, you know, that he was a guy who coined the phrase, a womb with a view is what yeah. he was looking for. Or the pram in the hallway is the enemy of promise. Yeah. It's, you know, children, you know. But, you know, and he mixes French and Latin and he's very, it's very learned. And since I have a certain strain of that in myself, it's always always fun to recognize these quotes, and I wanted to be growing up after I, you know, became interested in books, which goes way back. But I, I wanted to be familiar with the best books of all all periods in all countries. I mean, I knew I'd fall short, but you know, I've, I feel now I can I can I can read almost anything with a certain amount of understanding, bring a certain amount of contextual knowledge to it. But that was what I wanted. Other people want other things from life, and I don't say that what I wanted was better. It was it pleased me. I grew up in a, as I mentioned, a working class family. I have cousins, who I adored when I was younger, who could you know if you gave them a rifle, they you know they could shoot a squirrel off a tree, you know five hundred yards. They they could fix a car. They could you know build a house. 
They could, they could, they were handy. They were, they were competent in multiple ways that I, I am not. Fortunately, they, after a while, it was recognized that I was not good at these things, but I brought, you know, a certain amount of glory, but value. renowned, renowned to the fact, they value, said, well, Cookie, my cousin Cookie, Henry, he's good at this, you know, hunting and fishing and cars and stuff. Whereas Michael, he's, he's good at books, he's good at reading, you know, he's good at that book stuff, knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it was not thought that I was better than Cookie, I was just different. We were both good at what we knew and liked. And I still believe that. There's a certain amount of, you know, I, I value high culture. I, right now there's a, a tendency to, to devalue it, but I don't. It took me a long struggle to, to, to acquire, acquire some of it, but I don't think that um, you know uh, certain are uh, you know that we should think of artists and creators as necessarily you know better or special or anything like that they're just doing what they like and are, are, are good at books you say like great art music and love make us feel passionately alive yeah <laughs> I think that's true they do. Especially think, the classics. Well, I think so. I mean, they're classics for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, classics are books that they keep speaking to us generation after generation. And one reason they're classics that, that we, they do that is that we go back to them. I mean, they, they, they influence later books. Simple example would be if you. Uh, you learn if you read the Odyssey and you learn about Odysseus, you gain an insight into a number of other poems. I mean, in the beginning of uh, Dante's Inferno, we learn about the later adventures of Odysseus as he sails, you know, off into to the gates of hell, essentially. And later on, you get one of the great poems of the 19th century, Tennyson's Ulysses, with the, the famous last lines. Though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. I mean, those are lines were read at Kennedy's funeral and mm -hmm. spoken by Judy Dench in one of the uh, James Bond movies as the bad guys are attacking. Then later, of course, there's Ulysses. You know, Ulysses is modeled after uh, after mm -hmm. that, and Nikos Kazantzakis wrote uh, the Odyssey, a modern version or a later version, and so you you gain a whole series of insights because of the your understanding. And if you don't know the Odyssey or you don't know the story of Odysseus, you're going to miss out on what the meaning of these other later books are. The thing is, though, I don't know that you can just sit down and read the Odyssey on your own. Why not? Well, because you miss so much. If you're reading it in a class with a, a real enthusiastic expert, they can make the reading so much more meaningful well, for you. Well, I think a good teacher you can always do that if he's, you know, if you're in tune with him or her. But no, I think, I mean, the Odyssey particularly. I mean, the Iliad's a little harder, mm -hmm. but the Odyssey is a great adventure story. It's really the first first stories I ever knew. My father, who was not a reader, not a book guy at all, he kind of knew the story of some of the adventures of Ulysses, as he called him, not Odysseus. So I heard about the Cyclops and Scylla and Charybdis and 
For yeah. me, it's like a, it's like a Tarantino movie because it's all about, or a good part of it is about revenge. The suitors yeah. get wiped yeah. out at, toward the end. Don't so, screw with my wife. Yeah, well, it's certainly like that, or Game of Thrones, or uh, Kill Bill, or you know, kind of the Bride Wore Black kind of thing. Cornell Woolrich of revenge and mass killings at some points. Although that doesn't really appear until the very end. I mean, no, but was, it's, it's a build-up. There's tension. Yeah, we, we are, that's true. It's there with you know, Telemachus and going his mother and all that. My discovery was similar to that. And I've, and I've actually I've written about the Odyssey and the Iliad for the Barn, Barnes and Noble does these issues of classics, and one of their editions has a long introductory essay by me on the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. uh, they use the Samuel Butler translation which is in prose, and it's very readable. Butler would be the guy who wrote, believed that the, uh, the Odyssey was written by a woman. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, the great discovery of the, along the lines you mentioned was the Icelandic sagas when I got to graduate school. The sagas are, if you can imagine it, spaghetti westerns. You know, think of good, the bad, and the ugly mm -hmm. set you know, in Iceland with swords. They're, they're fabulous stories. There's one guy in the Njal saga who's never, who never smiles except just before he goes into action, into battle. <laughs> so the, when you, you have a little phrase where he's, this guy's going around smiling, you know the things are about to erupt. At one point he sees his enemies waiting for him in a frozen river downstream uh, to ambush him, and he puts on essentially a pair of ice skates, and he, he skates down this frozen river with a sword in each hand in the midst of his enemies and slashes <laughs> them by surprise. Nial Saga, Nial is a lawmaker and his family, big family, dozen kids, uh, and, a, and a foster son. They're all trapped by their enemies and burned to death. Forty, forty, the burners are called. Only one, only the foster son survives, and he seeks legal redress for this atrocity. But the burners get away with it for complicated reasons. So the second half of the book, he becomes this relentless avenger. And he tracks them down one by one to kill them. And you get all these till, till the end, only the leader is left. And he's, he's on his way to, to meet, meet him and finish his life's work. And he's, he's shipwrecked in winter and he's freezing to death on the shore. And he, has to, he crawls to the guy's house, the only uh, abode nearby, and, mm -hmm. and, and asks for hospitality, which he mm -hmm. has to be given. And eventually they're reconciled because Christianity has come to Iceland. That's also a subtext in this. Hospitality is also an important theme of the Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're thrilling books, thrilling books. Well, that's the great thing about your books, I think, is that you name names. You say, this is a great book, and uh -huh. uh, well, here's what you should read. For example, The Good Soldier is another. Oh, yeah. This is the saddest story I've ever heard, it begins. I, you know, I do try to be passionate about things that I think are good. Do you think there that's your role then? Your role is to share your passion yeah. and I mean, try and encourage people to what? I, I want people to read beyond the bestseller lists. I want them to try and discover good books that might speak to them more profoundly. Mostly I think it will give them pleasure. It will you know, enrich their souls in some way. Make you it know? more fun to be alive and on this earth. Yeah, I mean, I, we want to we want to experience as much as possible in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, within certain limits. But you know, books allow us to, to exceed all kinds of limits. Um, I mean, you know, my real my I would really love to have been a professional riverboat gambler. I'd mm -hmm. love to have been maverick, but I just could wasn't good enough with cards. 
but I can't do that. But I can, you know, I can read books about all the things that I would like to have done and haven't done and get some sense of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like, you know, I like adventure stories and true crime and mystery yeah. and mysteries. And, um, you can jam all of this into one life. All of these, these enlarge you mm-hmm. in some way. It's also why I, I think reading is important in terms of the, the current social and political moment. Mm-hmm. in that this this rise of nationalism that we see around and this jingoism uh which i find you know you know quite revolting mm-hmm. uh i i you know i believe that people should aim to become citizens of the world yeah. i would i'd love to be I'd be thought of as a rootless cosmopolitan as they used to deride the you know the jews sometimes mm-hmm. uh that the idea of being aware of other cultures, other civilizations, and appreciative of them, and not just think it's, you know, America or Canada or any other country is the be-all and end-all of civilization. I think that's short-sighted. It's, you're cutting yourself off from too many experiences if you only stick with your own country's um, heritage. So reading and translation is valuable. Yeah, I, I mean, I was in comparative literature in, in, in graduate school, mm-hmm. not just in, I wasn't in English, and that was partly because I wanted to read books in all from all kinds of backgrounds, and so you know, European, you know, German, and French were my my languages that I knew, and I knew Latin enough to do be a medievalist for a while, and I uh, wish I knew had, had more more flair for languages, but I didn't. I, my my high school was supposedly first in the state in juvenile delinquency, so it was not the best place in the world to, to acquire the foundations of a literary education. You say that wonder is what's missing from too much adult reading. What do you mean by that? I'm not even sure what I mean by that. One, I mean, I do think wonder, I mean, is important. Uh, science fiction particularly is always, you know, we talk about in the sense of wonder is what science fiction uh, elicits in the reader. This this may go along with my feeling about fiction in that we've lived in a period when I, when I was growing up when when fiction was terribly realistic. But I've always thought that the mainstream of literature of fiction was fantastic, fantastic fantasy. That most of the world's stories are fairy tales and folk tales and magical tales and romances and, and other worlds, and that the idea of just writing about the way we live now is relatively, you know, something that's only happened for the last couple hundred years. You know, in the last several decades, we've had a, much, a great explosion, as I once predicted that we would have of, of fantastic writing. People, you know, get tired of reading novels. Maybe they don't, but I, you know, I was certainly would have, you know, about adultery in Connecticut. I mean, I, it's, it's partly the way literary history works. If you have a dominant form, and as, I wrote this in 1980 in an essay for The Nation called The Genre Ghetto. And I said, well, back then, up, uh, leading up to, to, to that period, um, these realistic Daltrian uh, Connecticut kind of novels were the primary form for American literature. But then already we had started having these these big mm, big meta novels by John Barth and Thomas Pynchon and the like were interrupting that that pattern. The sawweed factor, right? Yeah, that, I love that. Yeah, the new rising generation of writers would revolt against realism and turn to the margins, turn to their yeah. uncles and the aunts of literature, and that being, those uncles and aunts being things like crime fiction, 
science fiction, westerns, certain kinds of fantasy, and they would take their models from those rather than from realist fiction. And so indeed you have, you know, Cormac McCarthy's writing all kinds of westerns, which are amazing books, and Michael Shabin's comes out of fantasy, and um, Jonathan Lethem, and a lot of the people who are our most interesting writers now have connections with or are central figures in, in, in the genres as well as in our mainstream culture. Anyway. One of the things that I really want and hope to get from, uh, from a book, uh, uh, in addition to being moved or, or educated, is to have a good laugh. And you cite E.F. Benson's Lu- Lucia books. Yeah, why are they so funny? Now, well, you might remember some of them were, were, were filmed in Britain. Uh, there was two series of Map and Lucia. Yeah. Uh, and there was a, a sequel. And they're, they're about the rivalry between two self-centered, would-be literary women in, in a small provincial town in, in England. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're a bit like... Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a, a flavor of a mix of Evelyn Waugh and maybe Ronald Furbank. They're, they're social comedies that just delight people. Nancy Mitford and W.H. Auden and many people were, were fond of them. Mm-hmm. Benson himself was a remarkable guy mm-hmm. as a writer. Mm-hmm. His father was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay. And was, in fact, not only Archbishop of Canterbury, but he was the guy who gave Henry James the idea for the turn of the screw. Mm-hmm. And then the children were all homosexual or never married. Or, or Benson himself was also a great ghost story writer, arguably the greatest English ghost story writer after M.R. James, mm-hmm. um, and wrote um, uh, tons of, of novels of all kinds, some better than others. But the Lucia books and the ghost stories are what remain. His, his brothers also wrote interesting uh, fantasy and supernatural fiction. You also love the Code of the Worcesters. Well, I loved all P.G. Woodhouse. We talked about my fondness for um, aphorisms and and the like. Woodhouse Nuggets by Richard Osborne. Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's a collection of just those sorts of things. Mm. I mean, Woodhouse could just toss off these similes that were incredibly funny. He drank coffee with the air of a man who regretted it was not hemlock. Yes. Uh, and others much m- a little it's more elaborate that are just just really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. he's, he, he makes you happy. Hitchens we, was a big fan of, uh, yeah, of Woodhouse. You know, Christopher and I, used to, Hitchens used to I'd talk about it. I once was writing a piece about Woodhouse, and I did ask him what his favorite stories were. Yeah. I remember he was fond of Comrade Bingo, where which is about a given uh, Hitchens... Uh, Socialist interests at you know time was sort of appropriate. Yeah, um, he often used the yeah. Well, he was, uh, yeah he, he, Christopher and I met when we both first came to Washington. I, the first, only person I my friend Robert Phelps told me to look up when I got here mm-hmm. when I was coming down. Marion was already here. Was was Bernard Knox, who was the director of the Center for Hellenic Studies, and was a very famous Greek scholar. Had been at Yale. He'd, he'd studied at Cambridge in the 30s. A. Houseman fought in the, civ- the Spanish Civil War. Where his two best friends were Julian Bell or not Bell and Corn Bell and Cornford. Uh, John Cornford and Julian Bell, I think, were they were both killed. Knox survived. 
During the Second World War, he was a, a fought behind the lines, organizing partisans in, in Italy because he spoke perfect Italian, perfect French, you know, the way that Englishmen did in those days. He later told me that uh, he was at a conference in the early 50s, classical scholars. A little guy comes running up to him and says, Professor Knox, Professor Knox, you probably don't remember me, but you taught me how to blow up trains. <laughs> he was a wonderful... Anyway, Knox invited me in there into dinner, and the other guests were Christopher Hitchens and his first wife, Eleni. And yes. both Marion and Eleni were pregnant with our, our first ch children. So we became friends, but we were never very, very close. Just uh, winding down, uh, I want to hit on uh, a few uh, more critics that you sure. admire. And a few more authors. Jack Vance, for example, you think he's oh. the best fantasy oh. sci-fi writer. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to science fiction readers, Jack Vance is a favorite of many. He wrote a lot, but he wrote beautifully about no matter what he wrote about. He has an elegant, ironic style. It reminds me of uh, a little bit of, of, of Edward Gibbon or Evelyn Waugh. It's very pure and ironic and funny. His first book is called The Dying Earth, which established a whole genre, the idea of, a, of the sun slowly fading and the earth cultures coming to an end. And his characters all are kind of elegant and world-weary, uh, slightly decadent, and they, they speak with great punctilio. Uh, they're, they're, they're just delicious books. And he's a great master of world building, as they call it in science fiction. That is, he can imagine and create convincing alien civilizations better than anyone. This is just sure. a line of yours here. I have the willpower of a willow branch. Is that true? Do I have the willpower of a willow branch? I said that? He tossed it in somewhere, and it might have had to do with buying, be. Bu buying books, probably. Well, yeah, probably with some, in some things I do have the willpower of willpower. I mean, I'm, it's hard for me to, to to walk by a used bookshop and not go in. On the other hand, I'm you know I've been a professional journalist for forty years, and I meet I meet my deadlines every week. I have deadlines sometimes every day, so I you know I'm I'm also pretty rigid and hard on myself in that regard. One of your favorite kinds of prose is elegant blarney. Why is that? I don't know. I was probably talking about Flann O'Brien. Uh, or the best of miles. That was another. That was one of Flann O'Brien's uh, pen names. His real name was Brian O'Nolan, and but he writes Miles Nagopoline or Flann O'Brien. Flann O'Brien he wrote at Swim Two Birds and yeah. the Third Policeman and uh, the Dolph Yard. You, you recommend those as those are funny, those, right? Those are very f the funny novels. They're uneven, but mm. even a lesser novel like the Dolph Archive has has, has really interesting ideas. For example, in the Dolky Archive, uh, we discover that James Joyce didn't die when we thought in like 1941, mm -hmm. but that he, he in fact rejected all his earlier writings. He was still alive, living in Dolky, and writing tracts for the Catholic Truth Society and repudiating his all his work. Mm -hmm. uh, but in The Best of Miles, he's a, this is a column he wrote for the I Irish Times, where he had a number of different characters and themes that re reappear. For, for book collectors, he has a section called Book Handling, where the people who are you know, newly rich and want to impress people with their libraries, 
can hire graduate students essentially to come in and take these pristine looking books and mark them up so they look like they've been read by their owners in, you know, to, to impress people by the, the learnedness. And there are different levels. You can, if you pay the highest level, you can get, you know, little comments as though written by the author with, with thanks for giving me the idea for Lady Chatterley's lover, you know, D.H. <laughs> Lawrence or something. You know. uh, but they're hilarious. Mm. And he had a real flair for uh, just spinning out uh, ideas. Or he, he had a, a service for shy people who want to shine in society. You, could, you would hire escorts who were ventriloquists. <laughs> would, would would do both sides of the conversation to make you look good. Mm. <laughs> he was he was he was wild, but a, a famous you know Irish drunk in the way of many and a very endearing writer. One of your favorite critics that we haven't mentioned yet is uh, Mario Prath. A critic I like not as much as I like the other people, but but he wrote one brilliant book, somewhat superseded in some ways. These little heavy-handed at times in his arguments, the romantic agony about the romantic excesses of the 19th century with cha chapters, for example, about the influence of the Marquis de Sade on mm -hmm. later literature. Chapters times called The Shadow of the Divine Marquis. Uh, it's, it's about excessive forms of love that appear in, in literature, sadomasochism and, and the like. He also wrote other books on 17th century uh, English poetry, and, you know, a whole book about called The House of Life, which is a kind of memoir, autobiography, which he describes the furniture in his house. Mm. He's a great collector of furniture. Wrote, wrote a book on history of furnishings. Mm. Supposedly had the, the, the uh, evil eye, and his whole career was slightly blighted by this, I think, because people didn't like to be in Italy, didn't like to be around him. Uh, Guy Davenport. Oh, Guy Davenport, yeah, he's a w wonderful, gosh. Is he still alive or not? No, he died a couple of years ago. I just reviewed a I read twice. Mm. Uh, last year came out the, uh, came out a two volume, the Guy Davenport Hugh Kenner letters. Oh yes, Hugh Kenner being yeah. another Canadian critic yep. and American from, as from well. Peterborough. Yeah. You've got Robertson Davies hometown for a while. Robertson Davies hometown. Yep. And you've got Marshall McLuhan's. No, you've got Kenner's copy of Marshall McLuhan's um, Understanding Media. Yeah. There we go. And, still uh, got that. I, mean, I still got yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. And I just wrote an introduction for uh, a new Penguin omnibus of the the Deptford trilogy they're coming out with. So I've just uh, written yeah. about Robertson Davies. So there's another sure. people. But yeah. the uh, Kenner Davenport letters are two volumes, edited by Edward Burns, brilliant editor, brilliant annotations. Um, won some great, some editing prize that I saw recently. But I wrote about it the first for the Post briefly because I my post reviews are 975 words, and then. National Review asked me to write a longer piece about them. Now, I'm not of conservative bent in terms of politics, but Kenner and Davenport had both written regularly for the National Review, so I thought it would be kind of appropriate to write about them for them. Yeah. So I wrote a long piece, about 3,000 words about them. Mm -hmm. But they were both brilliant polymaths, and they sparked each other for years. Mm -hmm. and. Pound was their central interest. Pound goes off in so many directions. What is it? The modern era, is it? The, the Kenner's Kenner, book? Um, the yeah. Pound, Pound era. era. The Pound yeah. era. Yeah. And lots of other books. And Davenport's most famous book is The Geography of the Imagination. Okay. You say, you say that, is it Tatlin, which is his first collection? It's those really are stories. Oh, those are actually stories of yeah. a story collection. There's a story. He wrote straight essays. Yeah. 
uh, in several books. But he also wrote short stories, what should we call, call them fictions, based on true events, true real people that were slightly fictionalized. In Tatlin, I think you have some of the, um, he talks about the um, Kafka at the, uh, the, the air show in uh, wherever it was, and seeing Louis Blériot and uh, uh, who, who, other people who might have been there. He's, but he also will take philosophical views of Fourier and create sort of experimental fictions which people act out some of the Fourier ideas. Those, the stories I like less well in some ways than the than essays for a number of reasons we don't need to go into. But the essays, the same kind of writing that I talked about earlier that I admire that's both learned and personal at the same time. And no one was more learned than Davenport, and yet he started off very, you know, poor family in South Carolina, but, you know, went on to win, went to Duke and Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and Harvard and translated ancient Greek and, you know, taught at the University of Kentucky for years because he could walk to work and didn't drive a car. Yeah. But I visited That's him. I spent, I spent a day with him once. Okay. Uh, he didn't like to have visitors at that point, but... We headed off. I came at 10 o'clock. We talked till 5 o'clock that afternoon about books. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy. Well, speaking of uh, fact and fiction, you reference uh, Goethe, who talks about the tension between the claims of truth in memoir and the need for artistry. But you don't quite trust the form after Bruce Chatwin's The Song Lines. Well... Yeah, Goethe's autobiography is called Dichtung und Wahrheit, Poetry and Truth, the same idea, design and fact. For me, when I read the song lines, the song lines initially came out, it was supposed to be this truthful travel account of Chatwin in Australia. Yeah. And then it was later just revealed that he had made up a lot of the details and elements of it. And for me, this is kind of a betrayal. I think that when you, you're writing nonfiction, particularly when you're writing autobiography, you have a kind of pact mm. with the reader yeah. to tell the, the truth. That's if it's labeled that way. Tell the truth about what happened. Uh, if you start making things up, you're undercutting the whole, whole yeah. genre. In general, I'm suspicious of memoirs and, 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 and autobiographies, having read a lot of them over mm. the years. What's the best uh, one you read? The best autobiography? Mm. Rousseau's Confessions. Beautifully written book, astonishing stuff. He tell, that's where he tells you to be a, a good parent, and he abandons that's his an, kids. That's Emil. Emil is the book about the about raising children on education. Yeah. Rousseau's Confessions has, has wonderful scenes in it. There's one where he's he somehow gains the the, the opportunity to have a night with the, the most famous courtesan in Venice, gorgeous woman, and she comes to him and she's undressing, and he notices a a mole or a blemish or a birthmark near her breast and he sort of draws back with her and she's offended and she says, you know, and puts on back all clothes on saying, you know, give up women and study mathematics. Russia they don't studia la matematica. I just talked about the children in confessions. I read it. Uh-huh. And you uh, make this point and it stuck with me is 
how little we retain of what we read. Oh yeah. It's like okay, I I'm sure it, that that line about his children is hypocritical. Is he? Yeah. I thought it was in. It could be. I mean, he in there, but could, I, well, I just just as I say, it's, it's, he did abandon his children. He does talk about. Yeah, that. and he's a hypocrite. Uh, particularly since he wrote Emil, yeah. Yeah. But the point is, you know, we, we read in the hopes of retaining some of it, but it's kind of tragic how little we hold on to. Oh, yeah. And in a way it isn't, in a way you can reread it and get just as well, much this pleasure. Is one, this is one, one, one good function of having books in the house as physical books. Mm. If you have them in, on your shelves, you interact with them in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. You might pick them up, read a page or two, or refresh your memory, or, or just see them there. Whereas if they're on a Kindle, you don't even see them. You don't, they're out of place, out of mind. Yeah. So they do not, your memory isn't refreshed by what's in them. But in general, yeah, we, we do forget things. So you can, t you can talk about being well-read, but ask you about specific books. There's a very funny line that Woody Allen comes up with about War and Peace, and he tells uh -huh. you, yeah, it's about Russia. Yeah, that's true. That in some ways, you know, art is only really working on us at the at the moment we're experiencing it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the and then you've got to love that. That that you want to go back yeah, for the, that experience. Yeah. You know, the journey, not the arrival, matters, sort of thing. Mm, yeah. But for me, what I it's happened without my knowing it that when I was young, you know, I read voraciously all sorts of books, just one one book after another. But after I became a reviewer. I don't really feel I've read a book unless I've written about it. Yeah, yeah. And so I try to, I actually end up writing about most of the things I read in some well, fashion. It sticks, and doesn't it? it? That makes, me, makes you go back through a book and collect your thoughts, figure out what you think, mm -hmm. quote, make some quotes, you know, and it, it, it does help give you a better memory of the book. And, you know, also you could all just reread your stuff if you want to and yeah. get a sense of it. One reason I read so slowly is because I try to engage as deeply as possible with mm -hmm. the text. Well, when you consider how long it's taken them to write it, the least you can do oh, yeah. is spend... Uh, That's why I'm also such an easygoing critic. I mean, I, I've often, you know, having written some books myself, but also just knowing how hard it is to write a novel, even an ordinary novel, the, the snarkiness that one finds sometimes online is so cruel because, you know... Most of the time, people have tried hard to write yeah. the best book they can, yeah. and we should. And they've we laid should, themselves we out. Should, we they? should. We should cut them some slack if we can. Yeah. There yeah. are times when people write very you know, meretricious books. I wrote a f once, you know, kind of semi-famous review of um, Judith Krantz, a popular novelist now somewhat forgotten, best known for Princess Daisy. But I've been I've been writing about a lot of scholarly books, and my colleagues asked me to do this novel by her called Dazzle. And it was just a dreadful piece of second-rate schlock. And I like popular fiction as I, you know, we're working on it. And it was just, even the sex is boilerplate. But I began the review with a sentence that went something like, I read Judith Krantz's Dazzle in one sitting. I had to. I was afraid I couldn't face picking it up again. And I ended with something like, critics sometimes lament that good trees were felled to produce a certain book. In the case of Dazzle, I, f I even feel bad for the ink and the glue, <laughs> something like that. I mean, so I, I, there was a Take No Prisoners review, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was such a bad book, I felt I could do that. Yeah. However, if that had been a first novel by an unknown, yeah, I would don't. never have been that mean. No, but it didn't yeah. matter. She was going to make a million dollars and be a miniseries, whatever. Yeah.
I asked you earlier about about the best book on uh, the, the publishing world. You cite Edward Gorey's Unstrung Heart. Oh. Well, it's not so much about poetry, it's about the no, writing it's about life. The, it's about the literary life. The yeah. literary life, yeah, but yes. You, you, again, that's something that you oh, flagged. Oh, that's a wonderful book. It's yeah. uh, one of his earliest books, not, possibly his earliest, Did about a writer who tracks his finishing a novel and going into the city to give it to his publishers and the cocktail parties. And there are wonderful lines about you know the, the horrors of the literary life. Yeah. And it's, it's a very funny book. Well, it's my favorite Gory album, along with the pornographic one he wrote, the humorous pornographic one called "The Curious Sofa." You never, nothing's ever explicit, but it's 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 deliciously done. Gory's done quite a few lovely uh, dust jackets too. Well, it did many. He made his living doing dust yeah. jackets for a long time, and yeah. also the covers for Anchor Paperbacks. Yeah. A lot of the anchor, a friend of mine collects the, the gory covers on anchor paperbacks, mm-hmm. as do, I think, many other people. In fact, there was a book that came out just last year uh, devoted to Gory's publishing career and has illustrations of all the covers he did. That's good to know. The utterly new turns out to be very much like the unjustly forgotten. Yeah. That's a lovely turn of phrase there. That's yours. Yeah, I think that's often the case. We, it's one reason why I believe it's important to know the books of the past because so many younger writers these days seem to all have read the same 40 or 50 contemporary books. Mm-hmm. And they don't always have a sense of the traditions, even in their own particular fields of, you know, whether it's poetry or science fiction or what have you, and if they did, they would have a better sense of what was actually new and what was being, you know, repeated from something that had been done much better earlier, not necessarily by better. I mean, Thurber used to talk about even comedy. He said he, said he was always worried as, a, as when he was writing his stuff that, that Robert Benchley had done it much better 30 years earlier. Stephen Leacock, to take yeah. a Canadian example. Right. And Tristram Shandy, I mean, there's so many postmodern exercises in there that, that are now being yeah. called or new. Yeah, when they're not. no, all, all every, everything that's postmodern is mm. can be found in Tristram Shandy mm-hmm. or Don Quixote. I mean, in Don Quixote in the second part, Don Quixote comes into a bookshop and discovers <laughs> a book, book about Don Quixote. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you earlier about uh, the the Faden books. Uh, Clive James yeah. and I mean, what I'm always after is lovely beautiful well-made books that are cheap mm-hmm. can you toss off a few ideas on on that like the um, fade on we had oh I, series you mean series or like I love these little uh, gray walls books yeah. that I think I mentioned to you that the late 40s early 50s that are you can find them they're crown classics yeah. they're called Anything yeah. like that come well, to mind for our collectors in the crowd? Well, I think you have to follow your tastes. Uh, I mean, there, I've, I collected for a while, and maybe actually liked them better without the jackets than with, the older Viking portables, which were nice, compact little books of you know all the cl- major classic writers. And they're, they're hardback? Not, they're hardbacks. The new ones, you know, the modern ones of the last 30 or 40 years are ugly, clunky and the large paperbacks, but those that were produced before 1955, okay. and basically those in between the 30s, 40s, and early 50s, 
are, are, are really handsome little hardbacks. Auden did five, the five volume, Auden and Norman Holmes Pearson, the five volume poets of the English language, a beautiful little uh, set of those are, are always nice to have. I mentioned to you in an email, Rupert Hart Davis's uh, books yeah. in England, Jonathan Capes in England. There's some the, w Davies, the Supertramp poems. Uh, oh, the autobiography of a Supertramp? Yeah, it's Davies, right? W.H. Davies? W.H. Davies. There's some early po uh, books by Jonathan Cape where there's pattern pattern on mm. the boards, and they're, they're lovely little things. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you go back earlier, you've got design, you know, the bindings are, are, are themselves are ornamented. Mm -hmm. Or exactly, you know, beautiful, yeah. you know, the 1890s books by Charles Shannon, Charles Ricketts had mm -hmm. all sorts of curly cues and cute designs. Or, mm. um, the veil uh, press. And even commercial press, presses, things like... Um, Kenneth Graham's uh, Dream Days and uh, mm -hmm. uh, are beautiful, impressed, well, embossed designs on the on the covers. Yeah. Or, oh, I have a beautiful book of F. Anstey, the comic novelist who wrote Vice Versa, The Tinted Venus, uh, gorgeous book of a kind of Venus figure in gold on the cover. You know, I like the, the Stone and Kimball books too. They're nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't collect publishers' imprints in, in the way. A friend of mine did um, Covici and Frida books, mm -hmm. collected them all, and mm -hmm. sold them as a, as a lot. But, um, I mean, I, I do like the anchor paperbacks. They, they were beautiful paperbacks, and as I say, they were designed many times by Gorey. But some are actual first editions as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Nabokov's the... Um, the translation of Lermontov's Hero of Our Time for Anchor, and it's the first is that. And What years uh, are those? The, the Anchor pa paperbacks? Yeah. It would be in the 60s, basically. Did Alvin Lustig do any of the covers? Or am I thinking he, did, he did mostly New Directions. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, and, I mean, New Directions books were, were, were cool, too. I mean, unlike you, I've never sort of focused so much on, on, on the imprints I've mostly been an author collector, tried to get all the books by writers that I was interested in. Yeah. And occasionally I've done, you know, certain genres I collect. But um, if you were to look at my bookshelves, they would, uh, they would look like a used bookstore. <laughs> they would not look like a library. Certainly not an elegant uh, country house library. Books don't just open up the world to us, they open us up too. Well, yeah, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about being a citizen of the world. They, yeah. they, they, they enlarge us. They make us more appreciative of, of um, the whole great variety of, of human achievement. And, you know, it's, it seems to me it would be to me sad to live a life and not be aware of, the, you know, the great accomplishments of the past. And the way you, you come to know them is either by reading about them in books or visiting museums or going to concerts and listening to music. These are the, the greatest, great achievements of, of human imagination. And you would deny yourself those pleasures if, you're, if you don't know these things. This is not to say that, you know, just, you know, it's watching television sitcoms isn't, isn't fun. Um, but that's not all of life. Well, thanks very much for opening up to me this morning, Michael. Thank you, Nigel. It's been a pleasure. 
Michael Durda is the. What are you now? Well, I'm. A, I guess I'm just a. I'm a contract writer for the Post. I'm a weekly columnist for the Washington Post Book World. And although we've talked about readings most of this, I mean there are other books: Browsings, book by book, a memoir about growing up in my working class town and discovering books called An Open Book, and several others. What are you working on currently? Well, the book I mentioned, which is tentatively titled The Great Age of Storytelling, which is about popular fiction in Britain during the late 19th and early 20th century, and about the birth of modern genre literature. It's basically about adventure fiction. Great. We look forward to that. I look forward to finishing it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much.